Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Take your Bible and turn to Luke 7, if you would. Luke 7. And as you do, I want to say a word of thanks to Michael Ashby, the genius. Michael's the genius behind most of the graphics you ever see on these screens. Michael does a great job for us. He's a joy to work with on staff. And what you may not know is that a couple of weeks ago when I had to fill in for Jeremy, actually I was filling in for Matthew who was going to fill in for Jeremy. And and we remember that, but there wasn't time for Michael to put together any slides and the church office was closed. And so those terrible slides you saw that day were made by me. Um, I just want to make sure nobody thinks it was him. But the ones you see today are made by him, and so I gave him the title and the scripture, and he just kind of went wild with it. And I love that about Michael, because he just thinks outside the box. And uh, I never would have thought to combine them with the game you see there. Anybody remember that game? What was the name of that game? Anybody? Yeah, oh, close. It was called Simon. Not Simon Says. It came out in 1978. I was a sophomore in high school then. It was a top seller for Christmas that year. It's still fun to play. And we're looking at a man named Simon today and something he said over in Luke 7. We're going to go just go through the passage section by section and make some comments and trust that the Holy Spirit will make some application to our hearts. But let's begin reading first in verse 36. It says this, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. In our passage today, we're going to see Jesus has two encounters, one with a man, one with a woman. One of them is religious. He's part of the culturally elite. He's highly educated. The other is seemingly removed from anything spiritual. And the two encounters are contrasted with each other. Several years ago, we took the choir and orchestra from here to Argentina. Greg, you remember that, and Karen, you remember that trip. We performed 11 concerts of worship in four days, and it about killed us all. It was a great time, and we, we, we stayed in host homes, which was the best part of all. I had the opportunity to stay in a home with the most wonderful hosts. They were, they were retired from the ballet. He had been a prominent ballet teacher in Argentina, and his wife had danced the lead in many New York City ballet productions, and and literally all around the world uh, she had uh, danced. They were so gracious, so unassuming. Though they had been big shots on a world stage, they didn't act like it. They acted like I was the important one. They took care of every need I had. They carted me back and forth to the church and the concerts we were performing daily and nightly. They prepared all my meals, and the meals were of a gourmet quality. They gave me a very comfortable room to stay in. They even gave me gifts. 
And at the end of the week, I protested more than a little, uh, saying they were going overboard for all they were doing for me. And I, and I spoke to them in my broken Spanish, and they spoke to me in their broken English. And he turned to Hebrews 13, 2 in his Spanish Bible and pointed to the verse. So I turned to it in my English Bible, and I read, Do not neglect to show hospitality. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Well, I protested even more loudly, assuring him I was no angel and that my family and friends would attest to this. <laughs> but this couple insisted. And that's, that's, that's always a treat, isn't it? When, when someone is your host and they just, they, they think of everything and they take care of your every need. Hospitality was a very strong value in the ancient Near Middle East in Jesus' day. Much fuss was made over guests. A water basin would typically be provided so servants could wash the dust of the road off a guest's feet. Scented olive oil was sometimes offered to anoint a guest's hair. And beloved guests would be embraced and kissed as they were greeted and welcomed. In those days, the homes of well-to-do people were built around central courtyards in which formal meals were served. The guests would gather around a low table that was almost on the ground, and they reclined on the left elbow on some cushions while they would eat at the table with their right hand. Their feet weren't under the table. There was no way to make that happen. It was so low. Instead, they would extend their feet away from the table in keeping with the feet with the, with the belief that the feet were unclean and offensive by nature. And if you've ever been in the gym with me, you understand that all too well. And at these dinners, the doors of the home were usually kept open. And uninvited townspeople were free to wander in to observe the conversation and the goings-on. Typically, there was a great deal of coming and going by servants that were tending the table, and, and then people would just kind of wander in off the street. Some were hoping they might get a bite of the rich food once the dinner was over. Some were just curious, wanting to see a little bit more, hear a little bit more of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. So who is Simon, and why did he invite Jesus to dinner? This is not Simon Peter, by the way, one of the 12 disciples. Simon was a common name in that day. And this Simon was a Pharisee and part of a group that was very vehemently opposed to Jesus, at least most of them. Well, well, it was considered a big deal to invite a traveling rabbi to a Sabbath meal. Maybe Simon liked to boast about the celebrities he had dinner with. Or, 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 or maybe he had been in the crowd that's mentioned in the earlier verses. Luke seems to allude to this in verse 30 of the chapter. So, so maybe Simon was curious. Maybe he had some spiritual interest. I'm not totally sold on that as a motive, though, I think Simon invited him there to put Jesus in his place, to show him up in front of others. And I'll explain that in a few minutes. We, we don't know for certain. All we know is that he extended a dinner invitation to Jesus. And in verse 37, we see this woman who has come in off the street, and she's carrying a vial of perfume. Now, we lose a little in the English translation here. It's really a shocking thing that everyone there saw. The NIV says it very calmly, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. But the opening phrase in Greek is literally, and look, a woman, and a sinner at that. 
the ESV calls her a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, one option is that she was married to a prominent sinner in the city. The, the more likely is that she was a streetwalker, a, a prostitute, and, and that's the view of most scholars. So, so why did the woman crash the Pharisee's dinner party? I mean, I don't know about you. If I was in her line of work, the last party I would want to attend would be one at the house of the chairman of the deacons and then meet the pastor there, you know. I think she knew she was a sinner. I think she had repented of her sins and she just wanted to run to Jesus and she didn't care who noticed. And yet when we're convicted of our sin, too often the last place we want to go is Jesus. And it's because we care way too much who notices but she puts a perfumed ointment on his feet, and this would have been a comfortable luxury. It would soften calloused feet, cleanse dirty feet. It would sweeten smelly feet and soothe tired feet. Hey, come on. You know, at the end of the day when your dogs are barking, any relief in sight, right? But before she could do it, as she stood behind him, she was overwhelmed with emotion and, and couldn't do what she wanted to do. Her tears fell on his feet, and that's probably the first moment Jesus noticed her. And instead of running away, she kneels down, undoes her hair, and, and by the way, that in itself was socially unacceptable because a woman could be divorced for letting down her hair in the presence of another man. It was looked upon as if she had disrobed. But then she wipes his feet dry with her hair and then kisses his feet and then applies the perfume to his feet. It was an act of desperately joyous humility. She came with a small alabaster jar of perfume. Here's a picture of one on the screen from around that time. It's housed in a British museum. It was typically cut from stone in Albastron, Egypt, and so it was, it was expensive. It was a, an imported item. It was a small flask of perfume with a skinny neck, which made it difficult to pour out. It was typically worn around the neck and considered as an accessory of fragrance and beauty. If you wore it, it would cause a woman to be very desirable to a man when he saw it. But when she wanted to use the perfume, she had to break the neck, pour it out, and then the flask was useless. I mean, this is not your bottle of Chanel number no. 5 that gets used over and over. You get it. This is just a one-time use kind of deal. So what she was doing was very expensive for a socially marginalized woman, a prostitute, to give up something which was probably the most precious thing she had in her life. But she's not just making a financial sacrifice. Think about it. What does a prostitute have in a world like that? Her only capital, her only leverage in life is her desirability and attractiveness. But when she, she takes the flask off, she's saying to Jesus, I come to you with no conditions. I come to you and I give you everything I have. And notice Jesus was not put off by the woman or her past or by what she was doing. But somebody was. Look at verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The word to touch in both Hebrew and Greek is used at times for the sexual act. 
obviously that's not what's intended here. But Simon's use of the word touching indicates he believed she had sexual intentions. And that's why he responded the way he did. He's thinking, if this is a holy divine man, either he doesn't know who she is, which means he's really not divine, or he does know who she is and he's letting her touch him anyway, which means he's not holy. I think it never even occurred to Simon that Jesus knew more about that woman than he did. Furthermore, Jesus knew just as much about Simon, though Simon didn't have a clue about that either. So Jesus decided to teach him a couple of things with a little parable. Look in verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. See, the first thing he's trying to do is show Simon his need for a Savior. This is a brilliant parable. It's very short. There's two people in this little story that Jesus tells. They both owe money, and they're both about to lose everything. And here's what's brilliant about the story. It doesn't matter how far in debt you are if you have nothing to pay off the debt with. Does that make sense? See, it doesn't matter how bad a life or how nice a life you have lived. Everybody owes and no one can pay. It doesn't matter if you owe $10 or $10 million if you don't have anything to pay it off with. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, consider these two scenarios. You're camping out in the wilderness and a poisonous spider comes into your tent at night and bites you in your sleep and you never wake up before you die. Or you're camping out in the wilderness and a lion comes into your tent and mauls you and decapitates you and you never wake up before you die. Which of these two people is more dead? Well, one of them is pretty and dead and one of them is ugly and dead, but they are both quite dead. Simon is the pretty and dead. He's the one who owes 50 denarii. He's led a nice life. He's moral. He's successful. He's very respectable. He's been very successful in the eyes of others. And the, the woman is the ugly and dead. She's led a very broken life, a very messed up life. She's what we would call a 500 sinner. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying it doesn't matter you, you're, you're both dead. You're both dead in your sins, both lost, both without a way to pay back the debt of your sin. See, the Bible says that sin is not just breaking some rules. No, no, it's breaking the rule, the bottom line rule of the Bible, and here it is. There's a God, and it ain't you. That sums the whole Bible up. Theology, ethics, everything. What it, what it really means is, Religious people like Simon are trying to be their own savior. 
trying to control their own lives, be their own God, trying to pay the debt of their sin by being more moral than the next guy, by being successful, by giving to God or or, or charity. And irreligious people, like the woman, are trying to be their own God by flouting the rules, but they're both sinning. They're both lost, and one is pretty and dead, and one is ugly and dead, but make no mistake, both are quite dead. And therein lies the problem. Simon doesn't see there's a cost involved. See, forgiveness of a debt always means somebody has to pay. Forgiveness just means the debtor doesn't pay. Instead, the creditor pays. Forgiveness never happens without somebody getting hurt. If you wrong me and I make you pay, you hurt. And if you wrong me and I don't make you pay... I hurt. Somebody's going to be hurt. And friend, Jesus is saying the only way for you to get to know God is if I hurt, is if I pay your debt. Cost. Simon has no concept of that. Maybe some of you, kind of like Simon, I've heard people say, you know, I'm just spiritual, okay? I know there's a God, but I don't need this personal relationship thing with Jesus. I don't need this exclusivity, this this born-again thing. And to you, I would ask, what did it cost your God to have that kind of relationship with you? I would ask regarding your spirituality, where's the agony? Where are the nails? Where are the thorns? Where's the blood? Some of you might say, well, I don't believe it was necessary for God to go through all of that in order to have a relationship with me. And beloved, that's the reason why you're not weeping this morning like the woman. That's the reason you're not letting your hair down. That's why you're not giving the most precious thing you have in your life and laying everything you are and hope to ever be before him. It's because your understanding of God is far more like Simon than it is like that of the woman. That's why he's not a personal reality in your life, because you don't see the cost. Simon doesn't see his need, and he doesn't see the cost. His spiritual life is academic. It's moral. It's ethical. But it's not an abundant life. It's not a spirit-filled rejoicing life, a peaceful life. Look in verse 44. Then he, that is Jesus, turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. I said earlier, I think Simon invited Jesus to put him in his place. And it's because of these verses. Hey, come on, Simon knew what good hospitality looked like. He knew what was expected in these kind of social situations. 
But he didn't show Jesus any kind hospitality at all. He treated him with callous, calculated contempt. And all the guests and onlookers knew it as they took their places around that table. He didn't wash Jesus' feet. He didn't greet him with exuberance, didn't offer the oil to refresh him from the grit and grime of the day. I think it was a deliberate discourtesy. He may be going through the motions of looking on the outside like he's interested in Jesus. But by his actions, he's saying he really doesn't believe that he needs what Jesus offers. Does that describe you today? Look at verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And let's be clear here. The woman was not forgiven because she did these things for Jesus. Uh-uh. The things she did for Jesus that day were just a reflection of the forgiveness that had already taken place in her heart. Are the things you do on a daily basis, are the things you did in worship a few minutes ago, are those a true reflection of the forgiveness that's already happened in your heart? Each of the two characters in the story receives something from Jesus. Simon, in essence, he receives yeah, a seminar. <laughs> A teaching, he receives it as an insult, as a cold shoulder. It's, it's as if he's seeing Jesus turn his back on him. Remember how I said at the beginning, I think Simon was trying to put Jesus in his place. I really do believe that. And Jesus, in essence, says to him, come back to me when you're serious. Simon isn't ready to see the reality of who Jesus is. The woman, however, receives Jesus, and when she does... She receives a whole lot more. I think, first of all, the woman receives an ability to love like she never has before. Verse 47 can be a little confusing for some. It almost seems to say that the reason she's been forgiven is because of her great love for Jesus. But what it's really saying is that your love is a response to how deeply forgiven you feel yourself to be. She's not forgiven because she loves much. She loves much because she sees how much she's been forgiven. Maybe that needs to be our prayer this morning. Lord, show me how much I've been forgiven. And there's a principle here. Your ability to love people is completely dependent on how deeply you see your sin and how deeply you see yourself forgiven by Jesus. Are you, are you able to forgive others? I struggle with that personally. When somebody wrongs you, if you have too high a view of yourself, that is if you don't see yourself as a terrible sinner, or if you have too low a view of yourself, that is you, you see yourself as a sinner but unable to be forgiven, then you won't be able to forgive others either way. Because if you see how sinful you are, if you really see how sinful you are, you'll be too humble to keep a grudge. And if you see how forgiven you are, you'll be too joyful to keep a grudge. And if you cannot forgive, it's because you don't see yourself as deeply sinful and deeply forgiven. 
if you see your debt as little, you know, just, just a 50, that's really all, the size of the debt that you see Jesus has covered will determine how much you can forgive and love other people. If you see yourself as a 50, then you can forgive other 50s, but you struggle to forgive 500s. Make sense? It's a very simple biblical principle. If you're like Simon and then your house burns down, you're either going to be mad at God saying, I, I followed the rules and you owe me. This is the best you can take care of your children, Lord. Or you'll be mad at yourself saying, I tried to follow the rules. I, I guess I'm just not good enough. You won't be able to enjoy life either way. You, you, but if you see how incredibly deep your sin is and how absolutely forgiven you are, you won't be mad at him, and you won't be mad at yourself either. The greater you see your debt and the greater you see his forgiveness, the more you'll be able to love. And the woman now has this ability to love. Not only that, the woman receives a freedom from the fear of others. Look at that. She doesn't care what anybody else thinks. In full view of the crowd, she approaches Jesus, lets down her hair, and says to him, I'm all yours. She demonstrated a huge amount of courage. Isn't this ironic? By giving up power, she receives power. By surrendering to Jesus, she found that never again will she have to surrender to anyone else. She replaced the fear of others with the fear of God. And by the way, just by the way, Shameless little promotion here. In a couple of weeks, as our Wednesday night Bible studies start up, I'm going to be leading a men's group through a book by Michael Horton titled Recovering Our Sanity, How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears That Divide Us. It's a timely book for what we're going through as a church and as a nation today, and so I invite all men to come and attend. You need to register online so that you know which book to buy and so we can save you a seat. But the woman receives a freedom from the fear of others. There's, I suspect many of us in here today who would love to receive that kind of freedom. She also receives an assurance, certainty. Look at it. She hears from the Messiah himself as he looks at her and says, your faith has saved you. It's past tense. You have been saved. There's nothing more to do. In Simon's religion, there's never a past tense. He always has to keep striving, do more and more good works, worry about if he's been good enough, try and even out the scales of his own sin. In the religion of the Pharisee, you would never have assurance. That next sin around the corner might be the one that does you in, so you, you better do some more good deeds, better give some more money, better look more respectable than anybody else. And then Jesus tells her, Go in peace. Or, or more accurately, as the Greek is rendered, Jesus tells her, go into peace. In other words, her life and yours, if you find yourself in the story as well, her life and your life will be an adventure of peace. He's telling her, the more you see your debt and the more you see my grace, the more you'll be able to love. And the more you let down your hair, the more you open yourself up to me, the more you'll be able to face anything in life. The more power you give to me, the more power you will have toward everyone and everything else. Go into peace. And she did. 
But what about Simon? What do you think became of Simon? Look back one more time at verse 39. You get the title of today's message. Simon says. He had a comment, but he never said it out loud. Watch in verse 39. It says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet. Then notice the next words in verse 40. Jesus answered him. Oh, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> Simon never says his comment out loud, and yet Jesus responded to it. Well, of course. He does it supernaturally. He knew the comment Simon was saying in his mind, but never voiced with his lips. How do you think we knew, or how do you think we know Simon made that comment if he never voiced it out loud? Where do we get that detail of the story that no one ever heard Simon's comment, and yet here it is written down for us to read about? Where do we get that? I submit to you, we get it from Simon himself. I submit the only possible reason Simon would have talked about it would be as part of his own testimony about Jesus. I can see him months after that incident telling his friends, perhaps during another meal, hey, let me tell you about the time I met Jesus. I invited him to dinner in my pride so I could show him up, and he sat right where you're seated, and you know what he did? He read my mind, and he loved me enough to tell me the truth. Is Jesus great or what? Dear friend, he knows what you're thinking right now. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His ways are higher than your ways. He knows the state of your heart. And he loves you enough to tell you the truth. So he simply gives you this morning the same choice he gave Simon. He asks of you today, how much have you been forgiven? And the answer you give to that question is also the answer to the question, how much do you love Jesus? We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.